Hi, friends. You're listening to Episode 4 of the Bible Lab Podcast. You are listening to the Bible Lab Podcast, recorded before a very lively audience on the campus of Loma Linda University. Here's your host, Roy Ice. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. You know, this journey has kind of taken us by storm here at the Loma Linda University Church, and I'm really excited that you're spending your time as well to try to get to know this beautiful character and nature of God. In this episode, God begins showing more of his playful personality. I love it. We transition from three magical signs that, surprisingly, Pharaoh's magicians could replicate. And now we transition to ones that they cannot. This episode, we're going to take a look at the plague of frogs. And we're going to see why did God, out of all the choices that he could have made, why did he choose to invade Egypt with these tiny little creatures? We're also going to discover how this plague was even more of a nuisance and a mess than you've probably thought in the past. A huge turn of events happens during the plague of the gnats. You don't want to miss this one. This is the one that spooks all of the Pharaoh's magicians. This is the one that causes them to run to Pharaoh and cry, This is the finger of God! Our question is, what freaked them out so much about this plague, and how did it get their attention in a big way? You're going to be amazed by this one. In this episode, we also begin a little differently. Up until now, this podcast has had you jump right into the scripture and the discussion questions section. I want you to know something, though. We, we do a bunch of other stuff ahead of time at our live sessions, and I hope you can join us for a live session sometime. Because at our live session, there's a whole other section of fun that we have every single week. It's our yes and no section. And at the Bible Lab, we have an innovative pack of interaction cards. You may have heard some references to our question and comment and love it cards in the previous podcast. Well, we start every live session with five very fun yes and no questions, and everyone in the crowd raises either a green yes or an orange no card based on their own response to the statements that I read. If you want to see what these cards look like, you can actually see them on our website at thebiblelab.com, and you'll see a bunch of pictures of people using them. It's really fun to be a part of this section. Well, many weeks, I, I just kind of breezed through the yes and no questions without a lot of commentary between them. We laugh, we realize some major issues, differences, or contradictions, and we see what we need to spend the bulk of our time discussing. But then there's other weeks, like this one where we just can't help but stop along the way and deal with some very important issues before we move on. This session went exceptionally relevant, and so I'm going to share an extra portion of the lab with you as well this time. So I want you to prepare your heart and your mind for an extra blessing as we continue to search out the amazing character of God. Welcome to the Bible Lab. This is our fourth session in understanding how God introduced himself, technically reintroduced himself to his people in Egypt. And so today I want to start out with your yes and no questions. Number one, during the weekdays, the people I'm with are absolutely convinced that God is real. Yes or no? 
during the weekdays, the people I'm with are absolutely convinced that God is real. Looks like most of you work in Loma Linda. <laughs> Just kidding. Very cool. I, I like Dave's response. He, he, he raised up the question mark. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Good. By the way, Dave, I hope you don't mind. Dave drives all the way from Newport? Huntington Beach, Huntington Beach. Uh, David, you are so special to our community. Thank you so much for, he's come up, oh, is this your third week in a row? Third week in a row, all the way from Huntington Beach. Uh, yeah, you're so good. Thank you, man. It's, it means a lot to us. Uh, number two, the majority of my extended family are practicing Christians. Majority of my extended family are practicing Christians. Wow, look at this. The majority of yes, but we have, I would guess, about 20 to 25% of no in this. Okay, good. Number three, an unexplainable event in my life has convinced me that God is real. An unexplainable event in my life has convinced me that God is real. Okay, once again, looks like a majority of yeses and about 15 to 20% no, which is amazing. I, I love... I, I love the, the spiritual expression of those of you that raised a no, and I, I want to acknowledge it right now and tell you why. For those of you that raised no, you are here, you are committed to getting to know God and to being a committed Christian, and you haven't had some major life event, some miracle, something to fall back on and say, I know God is real because you just know. You have the strongest faith out of the people that are here. And I'm not just saying that. The reason why I say you have the strongest faith if you raised a no is because God knew you didn't need it. You didn't need it to know he's real. Me, on the other hand, and the rest of us that have a yes card, we needed it because many of us would have left the church and left the Lord had we not had that proof. But you didn't need the proof, and that's why you didn't have the proof, that event in your life. So I want to commend those of you that, that raised a no. You have a comment over here. It's about, it's about the event. Yes. There are some of us that have not had an event that ever since we were small children, we were always raised, you know, Christian. Yeah. So there is no definite line of demarcation. I was one way, one day, and then I met Christ, then I'm another way. Yes. There are some of us that did not happen. I, I have worked, this is my 24th year of pastoring. I know, I look 20. Um, but um, I started working four years before I was born. Um, 24th year of, of pastoring, and out of those 24 years, 22 years I, I spent doing young adult or youth ministry. And the individuals that I just, I, I just was so proud of were the individuals who were born into our faith. It is part of their, not only their family DNA is Christian, but they themselves have remained Christian. All the, they, they can't think of a time when their family didn't go to church. And I love the individuals who didn't, at graduation from school, grad, also graduate from church. You, you realize about... Uh, National statistic is 75% of Adventist young people, when they graduate from high school, they also graduate from church. They walk away from church. So when you look at the individuals, the young people who remained faithful, even after graduating from school, they continued on this faith journey of the ups and downs, the beliefs and doubts of, is God real? I, 
just absolutely am so incredibly proud of the individuals who have remained faithful despite the major event, despite the rags to riches, the drugs to rehab story. They've just been good kids all their life. Those, are, to me, are the most amazing testimonies in the world. But we don't put those people up front. The people that say, well, I went to church, and then the next week I went to church, and guess what? The third week I went to church. How many times do I need to say this? I've always been in church. We call that a boring testimony. To me, it's the most exciting testimony of all. Do you understand? Exactly. I had ma major events that convinced me about the existence and love of God, but one of them stands out. If many years ago, about 10 years ago or so, we were coming from Mexico, and we couldn't get the car, our Oldsmobile car started. After half an hour, it finally started, and I said to my wife, we are not stopping until we get to Loma Linda. Well, halfway, when we were about Temecula, we realized our uh, fuel gauge was almost zero, empty, so we had to stop. Well, we couldn't get the car started. After four hours of trying, uh, we even had a, an expert uh, called tow truck, and uh, he attempted, he said, there's no way you can get this car started because the timing is broken. So I said to my wife, let's find a motel. And she said, let me. I'm sorry. Take your time. She said, let me try. And she said, in the name of the Lord. Hmm. And the car started. Hmm. And we got to Loma Linda without any problem. Hmm. I called uh, the next morning. I tried to get the car started and take it to the mechanic. And you, you wouldn't cooperate. Hmm. <laughs> well, so finally, we called a tow truck. And we took the car to the mechanic. He expected the engine. He said, there's no way you can get this car started. The timing is broken. Hmm. Hmm. All right, let's have closing prayer. <laughs> everything I wanted to say today. Yeah, Dr. Elder. There are those who always went to church with the boring testimony, but never knew Jesus. Yes. Now, were they Christians? I read an incredible, uh, incredible um, quote, I believe it was from John Stott, this past week, that I'm going to butcher and paraphrase. But one of the most um, troubling statements that, that I read uh, in, in his book, The Great Omission, it said that there are many Christians who have never realized their need to be a disciple. They've been Christians all their lives, but never once thought of the responsibility to become a disciple. And so I agree. I agree with, with your statement. Okay, back here. Yes. 
I just wanted to say that I was one that raised my hand, that I didn't have a major event in my life. Yeah. But I want to comment that I had major people in my life who took an interest in me and continued to encourage me in my Christian walk. Yeah. And I want to encourage people here to do the same. You know, yeah. find someone, nurture them, mentor them. That's why I can say I never yeah. had a major event. Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, many of the, of the young adults, when we ask, why are you staying or why did you stay? The majority of them are saying, well, it's my family. I can't divorce myself from my family. Uh, and so a strong family, a strong community is one of the greatest things to keep young people in the church. Uh, number four, yes or no, God does not bother with little things. He's more concerned with the big picture. Yes or no? No. No, predominantly no. A few brave people were honest and said yes. Okay, awesome. Okay, predominantly no. Okay, so you feel like God is concerned with the little things is, is what you know people are, are probably saying. Number five, sometimes I feel like plagues have come into my life because of things I am doing wrong. I know I got to throw a tough one in there every now and then, don't I? We're mixed on this. We are really mixed on this. 50-50 split. Yes, and, and you even put yes and no up. Exactly. Thank you for representing the crowd. Um, that's a tough one. We've been talking through the story of how God introduced himself to the Egyptians, the greatest empire existing at that time, millions of people, the greatest civilization, and also had to reintroduce himself to his own people called the Hebrews, who for at least 200 years had been in slavery, working as slaves for the Egyptian empire. We talked the first week about, well, how did God first introduce himself? What was his first impression? And we found that God says, the thing I want Pharaoh to know is my name, but it's going to be a new name, the name that even the Hebrews don't know. And the name is actually a verb, to be. I am what I am. I was what I was. I will be what I will be. He introduced himself as a verb, Yahweh, a name that Pharaoh did not recognize, but would soon get to know fairly intimately. Next, we took a look at how God was able to introduce himself through the use of signs. Throw down your staff, it'll become a serpent. Why did he do that? Go take some Nile water, pour it out, it'll become blood. Hold your staff over the Nile, frogs will come up. And in all three of those instances, for some reason, God chose a sign that the magicians of Egypt were able to copy. They were able to do the same thing. Why did God do that? In my opinion, it was all setting up for today. The next step. I don't know why God was so polite in this circumstance. Why God politely was saying, let me take my time and show you piece by piece, I am that I am, and I will be what I will be, and I've been here long before you, Pharaoh. I think there is a setup going on here. I'll show you things you can do, and today we're going to look at God saying, I'm going to show you something only I can do. I don't know about you, 
And I don't know about the time that God's actions in your life went from coincidence to confidence. But that's what we're looking at today. God takes that next step and he says, okay, you might see some things as coincidence, but let me give you confidence in who I am. How does God prove his existence? So my question is, how has God proved his existence in your life? And some of you have already shared. I can tell you from from my experience, I already know. My faith walk is a weaker faith walk than others because I have had to have concrete things happen in my life in order to keep me in the church. It went all the way back even to my birth. Uh, Some of you uh, might have heard me tell a story about when I was born. I was born with leukemia. Uh, I was born at American River Hospital. It's not even there anymore. It was the uh, county hospital up in Sacramento. And so my mom had me, and then there was definitely something wrong. I wasn't waking up. I wasn't crying. I wasn't feeding. My, my grandma and my mom were trying to feed me with this little eyedropper just to get something down me. I was jaundiced. So my mom, of course, takes me to the hospital and says, there's something wrong with my baby. They run the blood test, and sure enough, I have leukemia. The doctor tells my mom, uh, your baby's got six months, uh, excuse me, uh, six weeks to live. Enjoy your baby, six weeks and he's gone. My mom, of course, goes home just as any mom would in tears. And um, at that time, my mom was taking my sister, who's 15 months older than me, taking her to the Carmichael Sabbath school class. You know, like most toddler moms, you go to Sabbath school and then you go home. You don't really go to church. And so she was taking my sister to Sabbath school class and leaving. Well, the pastor at that time, his, his last name was Radcliffe. And, and, and Radcliffe's wife had noticed, because she was a great pastor's wife who was uh, very active in, in the children's department. She noticed that uh, my mom hadn't been there for a couple of weeks. So she calls my mom, says, what's up? My mom tells her the story. She asked my mom, well, there's a special kind of prayer, an anointing prayer. Would you mind if my husband and a couple of the elders came over and prayed an anointing prayer for your baby? And my mom says, I don't know what this is, but sure, come on over. Come pray. Pastor came over, a couple elders, they prayed. The next day, my mom took me to uh, have some more blood tests done. Mind you, uh, at this time, I'm about uh, four weeks old, a month old. They run the test. The doctor says, "Um, I need you to come back tomorrow. Something's wrong. Mom comes back the next day, they do the blood test, and the doctor, after the result, says, I don't know what to tell you, but we can't find leukemia in in your baby anymore. He says, the only way I can explain it is it's a miracle, and he walks out of the room. Well, whenever God has someone in a place, the enemy also has someone in in the same place too, and there was a nurse in that room. And while she's finishing things up, she says to my mom, well, I don't believe in miracles. She says, even if your son has gone into remission or doesn't have leukemia anymore, it's been too long. These are the formative weeks of a baby's life. You may have a living baby, but your baby will grow up to either become crippled or retarded. And my mom repeatedly reminded me as a kid that I'm not crippled. And you probably agree with my mom. (laughs) I have that to fall back on. And that's just one thing. There's been several things in my life that are concrete. Why? Because there are many, many times in my life 
that I've questioned, is the existence of God concrete? Is it real or is it just the opiate for the masses? Is he real or not? For me, I had to have that. The question you have to ask yourself today as we go through this, as God is trying to make concrete his existence, not only how did he do that in Pharaoh's life, but how has he done it in your life? And my theory is that to the degree that your faith needs it, that's the same degree that it's happened in your life. So don't feel bad if you haven't had something major because the fact is God says, you don't need it. You're, you're good. You just know. You have this space in your heart. We have this conversation. You just know. Go ahead. Go ahead. We can tell that you're not retarded either. <laughs> um, you know, uh, God, uh, in these uh, stories of the plagues and the, the story that you just said and, and the story our brother told us and so on, and thousands of them, we learned that God has amazing and sometimes funny ways or even dramatic ways to tell us that he's indispensable yeah. in our lives. He is, whether we recognize him or not. Yeah. And I think that's the point that he's trying to make to Pharaoh and the priests. I am indispensable. I yeah. am in control. You yeah. cannot do without me. Yeah. And this uh, third plague, which is the frogs, mm -hmm. there's a transition there, very interesting transition, in which God is beginning to say, I am in control and I am indispensable. Yes. And that, that uh, um, particular element is that in the previous plagues, the priests were able to replicate that. Yes. And the record, the Bible record, doesn't say how we, they ended yeah. in terms of, you know, the water, the Nile's water yeah, how did to it normal. Stop? Yeah. The frogs, the priests were able to replicate that uh, miracle as well. But it's interesting that it's the first time when Pharaoh calls uh, Moses and Aaron and says, please pray so that the frogs will go away. He doesn't yeah. ask his priests. Yeah. And he doesn't just wait because he senses that there is an additional degree of um, supernatural element mm -hmm. that his priests are not going to be able to uh, do, Applicate. Yeah. to solve. So uh, here, God is slowly, degree by the, step by step, showing them I am indispensable. You cannot do without me. Yes. Whereas the gods of the Egyptians were gods you only paid attention to when you either needed them to do something or you needed them to stop something. They were not gods to be loved, and they were not gods that loved them. They were gods that you only paid attention to when they were needed or not wanted that much. Thank you, Niall, for flooding. Can you recede now? Exactly. Would somebody be willing to read Exodus chapter 8, verses 5 through 7? Exodus 8, verses 5 through 7. Thank you so much, Lynn. Just the mic, not my hand. Oh. <laughs> then the Just Lord. hold me. Yes. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer the sacrifices to the Lord. Hmm. So why do you think in the plague of frogs that God would choose to do something? God could have done anything. God could have brought tornadoes. God could have brought a stampede of giraffes, a plague of rhinoceros. But he chose a plague of frogs. Why would he choose something that the magicians could easily conjure themselves? Why do you think that? God is working, not just that the Hebrews know him, Mm -hmm. but the magicians, the priests, the generals, and Pharaoh. Yeah. So he brings the Magician said, I can do that. Mm-hmm. I can do that. I can do that. And they're on his side. Mm. But Pharaoh wants to get rid of the frogs by praying to Yahweh. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Didn't pray to the frogs to leave. Yeah. Pray to Yahweh. Yeah. You bring up a great point, which is those of us that went to small schools, we felt pretty confident in our abilities athletics, academics, whatever. And then you met someone in a different place, right? You're the old big fish in the little pond. And you get to a bigger pond, now you're the little fish, right? Those of you that listened to the Wednesday warm-up this week um, heard my story about um, batting against Reese Ryan, Nolan Ryan's son, when I was in college. And um, it's those moments, humbling moments, whereas you thought you were pretty good before, until you get up against a master. And you're like, oh my word, I, I have no skill compared to them. So I, I absolutely agree that what God is doing here is a setup. Setup to completely say, hey, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Oh, where are you? Did I leave you behind? You guys coming? Which brings us to the next text. Would someone be willing to read Exodus chapter 8, verses 8 through 14? Thank you. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials, and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. Some of you can imagine the smell. A couple of things that that we can completely pass over and, and miss here. First of all, uh, frogs in Egypt were not to be killed. It, it was considered wrong to kill a frog. The same way a Hindu would not kill a cow. You would not kill a frog because of the frog-headed and some translations say frog-hearted goddess of the Nile. And so if the goddess of the Nile brings 
all of these frogs, well, you don't want to upset the goddess, do you? And so all of these frogs, and the Bible is very detailed in the verses just before what we read, that Moses says, they're going to be everywhere. They're going to be in your bed. They're going to be in your cooking pot. They're going to be everywhere, and you can't kill them. They're going to be everywhere. You're going to be moving them aside because you can't kill them. You're going to be sweeping them up. You can't kill them. They're going to be everywhere. First thing. Second thing. Moses says, let me show you my God has control of timing. Pick a time anytime, and they'll be gone. Pick a time. It shocks me that Pharaoh would say, tomorrow. Because for you and for me, I'd be like, now. Let me see a parade of frogs go from the palace down to the Nile. Let's see them march in a great big celebration of goodbye frogs. But Pharaoh, being Pharaoh, thinks in his mind, this is what most commentators say, Pharaoh thinks in his mind that Moses has already figured out a trick of how to get the frogs to go right now. So Pharaoh, thinking, I will foil Moses' plan, he says, tomorrow thinking he totally messed Moses up. Moses responds, it'll be as you said. They will be gone. And then to add insult to injury, you weren't supposed to kill the frogs, were you? God says, I've got so much power that boom, they will be not only dead, but they will be in piles. You will sweep up and rake up piles and you will smell the smell of what I can do the control I have at the precise timing that I want to do it. Total control. Even though the magicians were able to replicate the frogs, God says, well, I can still show you something only I can do. Complete annihilation of those frogs right when I want to. That's the beginning of God saying, now it's time for the advanced class. Would someone read Exodus chapter 8? And verses 16 to 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, a, a couple of inside things be before we continue the discussion. Uh, the majority of the translators have chosen the term gnats. It could be translated mosquitoes. Can you imagine a plague of mosquitoes? Some of us don't have to imagine a plague of mosquitoes. Um, we've been in the middle of a plague. Another uh, translation might be lice. Scripture says they were on the people. So in my opinion, it's different than the gnats that we have now. Gnats are these little swarms. You're like, oh, okay, get them away from my ear. But it says they were on the people. In fact, for both this plague and the plague of flies, the next one, uh, Psalm 78 actually refers back to it. So there was an oral tradition 
that said that the Egyptians were devoured by these flying insects, which means they were bitten. And so most people believe that this one, and we'll talk about the next one here in a moment, but they believe that this one quite possibly could have been a plague of mosquitoes on the people biting the people, irritating the people. What's more irritating, a little cloud of gnats over here or mosquitoes all over you in a land before offspray? Exactly. Now, what, what have you heard in, in the past as to the reasoning why the Egyptian magicians could not copy this plague? What, what have you heard in the past? Anybody? If you're like me, you grew up with just the 10 plagues or the 10 plagues. As God said it, I believe it. That settles it. Okay, he chose gnats. He chose gnats. That was it. No reason. Don't question. It was gnats. He had a bunch of gnats available. <laughs> so most of us haven't heard anything. Can I share with you a little insight? Why in the world would the magicians stop and say, whoa, we see the finger of God here. This is not something we can do. I'm sorry, Pharaoh, we can't do that. It's obviously the finger of God. They recognized a divine intervention at this moment. Now, it's also interesting to note that when they say we recognize the finger of God, the, the words are not we recognize the finger of Yahweh. They don't say that. They don't recognize the Hebrew God. They said we recognize the, the finger of Elohim which was the generic term for the gods. In fact, it's plural. We see some sort of god or gods involved in this. The question is why? The magicians had a saying and a teaching at that time, and all of Egypt had an understanding at that time that the magicians had power over anything larger than a barley seed. If you ask them to do magic with anything that was living smaller than a barley seed, they would say it can't be done, not even by the gods. Can't be done. It's impossible. You can imagine the reasoning. The magicians are saying there's no way we can herd a bunch of mosquitoes into a bag and then let the mosquitoes. Um, it, it was just too difficult to collect them, to train them, and control them. Couldn't be done. No such thing as trained mosquitoes. Although some of you might argue at picnics when you see them all over you and not over other people. <laughs> but the reason why the magicians recognize it is because the insect is smaller than a barley seed. Isn't that funny? That's how they recognize it. We can't do it because we can't gather things smaller than a barley seed and replicate it. So we don't know how Moses and Aaron, and the scripture says that they took their staves and hit the, hit the dirt themselves. And we don't know if they were trying their own method of release the mosquitoes or, or whatever, um, but they just couldn't do it. And so they came back and said, sorry, Pharaoh, we, we can't do it. There's something divine going on here. Someone please read for us Exodus chapter 8, verse 20 to 24. And I sure appreciate you guys reading. It's, it's really, it's awesome. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let me, my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and your people on into your houses. Then houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on the day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. 
No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this, then swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's place, palace and into the houses of the officials and throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Hmm. The next plague, plague of flies. Most commentators say that it's probably the dog fly. The dog fly, which is a, a fly that bites, takes big chunks of you with it, likes to gather around your eyes, camp out there. You've seen pictures uh, on, these, uh, on the television and asking you to donate money, compassion or world vision or whatever, and uh, you're just like, oh, the flies. I do mission work, but the flies. This story is amazing because it talks about God's ability to do targeted placement. We saw him do precise timing. We saw that he has control of even the minute things. And now he says, now let me show you one more step. I can control exactly where the plague is. How do you keep flies in one area? Well, I don't want to spoil your... Your point, I was going to You always do, so I, go <laughs> ahead. You, you haven't apologized in the past. Um, in the first uh, plagues, um, it, it seems, I think it is implicit in the text, that it affected everybody, right? Um, so the Hebrews wouldn't have um, clear, clean um, water, for example, and, mm -hmm. and so on. And the gnats would uh, also affect them. But the mosquitoes, this one only affects the Egyptians. And that's, an, yeah. that's what you're, you're, yeah. we're going to say. And, um, but I, I want to see it from, because we're focusing on God is trying to convince the Egyptians of that he's in control, that he's indispensable, that he's superior, powerful, and so on. But I believe that he's trying to convince the Hebrews as well. Absolutely. He has to convince the Hebrews who haven't been convinced yet. Well, that's, that's my comment. Uh, uh, in the, you know, both of them have some degree of unbelief. Yeah. The Hebrews, after 400 years of slavery and, and, and you know, away from their land, mm -hmm. many of them became uh, secular. Yes. We would call them secular. Mm -hmm. And God has to build up faith in them, and he uses signs. Yeah. And this is... Perhaps the first time that in, in which they they see, oh, we are special. We do are we we are indeed are is, is special because he, God is sparing us yeah. from this plague. That's maybe He has a plan for us. Yeah, uh, you don't have to say you're sorry. You have to say you're welcome for that comment. Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want you to see today. Is that God? In convincing the Hebrews that you're my special people, he's also convincing Pharaoh they're my special people. Let them go. Now, the ultimate question, as you look at foreshadowing, those of you who are, who are gifted in writing and uh, you love story, you, you understand foreshadowing. Something's happening in this plague that's a foreshadow. What do you think this plague is foreshadowing if something happens to the Egyptians, but the Hebrews are spared? What is being foreshadowed to come? Right, right, right down here, microphone. 
the, the Passover of the, uh, the firstborn children. Absolutely. I guess it's probably a time you'll, have, you'll probably spend a whole session on that, but you, that's a, one of these very troubling Yes. Messages. Yes. Why? It, because you under an all-powerful God, and more we have collateral damage, we know, mm -hmm. but an all-powerful God must have had a different way he could have done it. Yes. And in fact, we started out the very first week, week one, session one here, we had to start talking about, um, well, actually, it was the second session when, when we talked about Pharaoh hardening his heart or God fer uh, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And what we discovered is that in those last plagues, God was trying to convince him. And I believe he was starting right here with the plague of flies saying, look, there's a benefit to my people. They're my people. Good things are going to happen to them. Bad things will continue to escalate in, in your life. And bad things will happen. If I say it, it's going to happen. It's interesting to note, for those of you that missed, by the way, the study guides are in the back, but uh, when it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it uses a different word, didn't it? There's two words used for harden. Whenever it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, it uses one of the two words. It either means he became stubborn, he didn't believe it, but he stood fast. Or the second word means he was encouraged and he stood up for what he actually believed. Whenever it says in these last plagues that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, only one word is used. God encouraged Pharaoh to do what he believed, to stand for what he believed, not to break him down, to do what God wanted him to do even though he didn't believe. The word that's used is encouraged. Encouraged his heart for Pharaoh to do exactly what he believed and not to become a coward and to be broken down. God doesn't break down people. He builds up people. And so even in that moment, he built up. So when we get there, you are absolutely correct. We have a whole study just on the Passover. But here, I believe God is trying to help Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Hebrews understand. If I say something's going to happen to my people and something's going to happen to your people, you better, you better believe it. It's going to happen exactly as I say. Yeah. Why did God wait so long to separate his people from the, from the terrible plagues that were happening? Because it seems like, oh, it's okay. They can endure frogs and no water and mosquitoes. I, I, but. I, have, a couple of, I have a couple of theories, but I want to throw that out because that's an excellent question. What, what do you guys think? Why do you think? I'm going to come back here to do it. Even in our own lives today, a little suffering goes a long way. And so... Um, all you have to do is feel the pinch a little bit, mm -hmm. and the Lord gets your attention like you've never had, like He's never had it before. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the Hebrews. Just get their attention. Uh, had they been spared everything, would they have appreciated? You know, you you have to feel the pinch a little bit to know appreciate when it's yeah. not there. That's and that's one of my theories. The reason why I appreciate my paycheck is because I've experienced not having a paycheck. <laughs> Had I always had a paycheck, I might find cause to complain about my paycheck. I want you to look at the last question in the dig deep section. So far in our study, do you think the plagues are demonstrating God's judgment or patience? And I'm going to do this as a yes, no, since we're short on time. If you think that the plagues are demonstrating God's judgment, put yes. If you think it's not judgment, put no, okay? Yes or no? Is, are, the, are the plagues demonstrating God's judgment? Okay, majority are saying no right now. Okay, how many of you think the plagues are demonstrating God's patience? Yeah, kind of an interesting thing. We, we typically have 
historically looked at, at the plagues as, as things that were uh, just God's judgment, judgment, judgment. But as we take a slow walk through them, we're realizing God is extremely patient because it doesn't say for all of them how long, and it doesn't say exactly when they stop. So we have to guess, probably a week uh, for each one. Um, that's a lot of patience to wait two and a half months to give God what God wants. Ah, thank you so much for joining us for that powerful session. I'm so thankful that you listened to episode four, but I can't wait for you to listen to episode five because in episode five, God takes everything up another notch. And I can't wait for you to see what God did in Exodus chapter nine. God says he's going to do something special. And he says, so you, Pharaoh, may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. God is about to show a plague that is unexplainable. It is a contradiction. And I can't wait for you to hear it because it blew my mind when I dug into the commentaries and saw what the plague of hail really was. And so I'm so glad that you listened, but I hope that you really will listen to episode five as you continue to try to search out and discover who is this God that you serve? Who is it? How can you get to know him more and how can you become best friends with this creator God of the universe, this stranger God who loves you like no other? Thank you for listening to the Bible Lab podcast. If you are planning a trip to Southern California, make sure to reserve your VIP seats in the Bible Lab by emailing us at info at Programs are recorded each Saturday at 10.30 a.m. We hope to see you soon. Until then, we wish you God's richest blessings as you continue to research and develop the character of God.